thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. All right, sports fans, pop quiz time. Fighter jets are used for A, air combat, duh, B, air shows, C, air races, D, all of the above, E, none of the above, F, A and B only, G, B, C and D only. Okay, you get the idea. We've spent most of the past 150 Fighter Pilot Podcast episodes talking about air combat, and we've even had a few on how air shows help inspire the next generation of military members. But today, we're talking about all of the above with two guests who once flew Hornets and Phantoms, but now they're racing jets. You're traveling at 800 feet per second, aiming for a pylon that is a telephone pole with a 55-gallon drum at it. While you're keeping the ground 50 feet away from you, it becomes very demanding. Once you close that canopy, it is 100% air racing. Uh, you're looking good out there. I think I'm okay. Ship flight, we're starting downhill, pushing it up. The fastest aircraft out here at State Airport. Gentlemen, you have a race. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Welcome to the show, everyone, and what a show we have lined up for you this week. I am your host, Jello, and I know you are just going to love Rick and Peter, who will be along shortly to school us on the jet class of the Reno Air Races, which, oh, by the way, are coming up in just a couple of weeks, as they do every year in September. This episode is debuting at the end of August, and I'm looking forward to the races. I'll be out there. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But first, hello. How are things? Man, pretty good here, actually. It is pretty much the end of summer in the Aiello household. We've got our oldest back for his senior year of school, and our middle is now off to the University of Alabama to start his college. So we've got just one kid left in the house. Frankly, he's a little nervous because he's going to get all the attention now. But we're looking forward to a good school year and what fall has to bring. Let's see what else is going on. You might remember from a few episodes back, my nephew Kai, my brother Rocky's son, he is in fact on his way. In fact, by the time you hear this, he will be in France, proudly representing Team USA, racing his motorcycle in the endurance race we talked about. And I'm sure he'll make his team, the US and my brother Rocky proud. So Kai, best wishes out there and update us so we can let everybody know how it's going. On the Fighter Pilot Podcast website, we recently added a feature to the glossary, and it allows now suggested additions. In fact, recently someone said, hey, why don't you say what tally-ho means? So we did that. But someone just the other day suggested we add tar cap. That's not exactly a term I remember or used. So if someone can refresh me on what tar cap means, please help me out, and we'll add that to the glossary on the website. Also, many listeners have asked if the graphic novel Pink mentioned on episode 149 is available publicly. Well, Pink, you remember Lance Floyd? He was kind enough to return to the show recently, as some guests do, for a live Zoom for 30 minutes. That's a Patreon perk for certain tiers. 
And he explained the comic book, as he puts it, that they're working on. Right now, the short answer is no, it is not publicly available, but they're working on that because there's some sensitivities around it. And I told Pink, hey, if you ever get this thing publicly out there, let us know. We'll be happy to help you promote it here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And then last week, everyone seemed to love the Maritime Patrol episode, and we had a lot of feedback in the usual places like we do, but I did receive an email from Scoots, as he identified himself, who told me several things. A couple I'll share with you. He said a P3 Orion provided ISR and recce support during the famed Black Hawk Down Battle of Mogadishu back in the early 90s. That's true. We forgot to mention that. Thank you, Scoots. Also, rumor has it a Royal New Zealand Air Force P-3 flew somewhere around 21 hours unrefueled, which is crazy. And then lastly, submarine-based SAMs are in fact a thing, Scoots confirms. The IDAS, or Interactive Defense and Attack System for Submarines, is something you can search on the internet and it talks about its capabilities. So if you remember us talking about why don't submarines just shoot down the aircraft trying to pursue them, then you can uh, take a look at IDAS, Interactive Defense and Attack System for Submarines. And then finally, Scoots tells me the P-3 also does fishery patrols. It lands in Antarctica and it can drop Mark 80 series bombs, at least the New Zealand ones can. So good to know, Scoots. Thanks for helping with that. And yeah, you know, like I said, we don't always get everything exactly correct. Sometimes we leave stuff out. Sometimes we're just flat wrong about things. But Authentic, factual, and personal is the goal of this show, so we'll come back around and let you know. Now, speaking of dropping Mark 80 series bombs from P3s, Billy from Texas has a listener question to get us going on that segment of the show. He says, when you load weapons onto the hardpoints, how is the weapon linked to the aircraft? How is the pilot able to take control of the weapon and change its settings from the cockpit? Now, Billy goes on, but let me jump in here lest I get distracted and forget to answer all this. So, Billy, I'm going to answer from the point of view of the FAA-18 because that's what my experience was. I assume other fighters are similar except for the internal bay like F-22, F-35. I don't know anything about those. But for an F-18, we had pylons that would attach to the wings. And that was something maintenance didn't like to put on and take off very often because they just don't always attach correctly. Generally speaking, you can attach those with the necessary hardware. And then there are electrical connections that allow you to then go down to the Brew 32 or the bomb rack unit. And that is the rack that has different attachment points for different pieces of either ordnance or launchers or rails or whatever you might be wanting to load onto your aircraft, including fuel tanks, as we'll get to in a moment. So the Brew 32 has hooks and sway braces. The hooks can be either 14 or 30 inches apart. And the sway braces are like these little feet that cinch down to whatever it is loaded on that station. And then there are different ways you can connect through the pylon for the aircraft to speak to it. One is the, what was it, the 1760 cable, I think it is, where it's essentially sort of think of it as a digital ability for the aircraft to say to the weapon, hey, what are you? And the weapon says, I'm this. And it says, oh, okay, well, since you're that, I know from my storage management computer that you should be able to do these things when I tell you to. And it says, yep, good to go. So a JDAM, a JSAO, I don't know, probably a slam ER, but I'm forgetting suddenly. They will all use that uh, 1760 cable. Now, for a dumb bomb, you have to do other things with different lanyards and cables and attachments and things. And then what you do is you basically have an input on the starboard side of the F-18 where you tell the jet how you loaded it. 
So for example, if you've got an M904 mechanical fuse in the front and Mark 15 snake eye fins in the back, then you might put, and I don't remember the exact code, but maybe it's a 16. So that's a one for the nose fuse code and a six for the uh, tail fuse. Okay, hold on. I got that wrong. So the six might be if there's a tail fuse or some other system that's in there. That's the first part of it. There's two codes you put in, the 16, and maybe the second is like a 33. And that 33 tells the jet, hey, this is a Mark 80 series bomb with a snake eye fin, like a Mark 15. So then it puts the ballistics into the heads up for you, and it allows you to manipulate certain solenoids. So you can either arm the bomb by pulling certain pins that allow the M904 to spin, or it might leave it in so it doesn't. There's also proximity sensors. Boy, I'm really going on a tangent here, aren't I? But I'm trying to answer your question. And the bottom line is here, Billy, it's really complicated. I mean, there's a lot of different options. You have a whole pocket checklist for what you should see that the Ortiz will load into the jet and what they loaded. And then you've got to know that all the lanyards and cables and everything are just right. And that's just for bombs. Then you've got missiles, rockets, a whole bunch of different things. So that is part of what makes, in my opinion, fighter pilots so professional. They have to know all those things. Now, Billy continues, I would like to ask the same question regarding external fuel tanks. How is fuel fed into the aircraft from the hard points? And Billy, there is just part of the pylon that allows a connection to be made. So there's some piping that goes up into the wings. So there are some controls so you can decide whether you want to get fuel out of your tanks or put fuel in to the tanks, etc. There are some caveats to all this, probably way more than I want to touch on, but you might notice in some pictures an F-18 will have fuel on many different hard points, including the centerline, but certain weapons cannot be carried on the centerline because if you ever look at that pylon, it's much smaller than the big SJU, I forget what it's called, something or other, 56, 65, 33, someone's going to correct me here. But the wing pylons are much more stout. They can hold up to about a 2,400-pound Paveway 3, but the centerline, yeah, you can hold the fuel but you can't hold the equivalent in a bomb for some reason. And that might also have to do with clearances because the pylon itself is so much smaller. Again, I'm sure people are probably who know about this better than I do, cringing at some of the things I took some liberties on. But Billy, I hope that helps. I'm going to stand by about 92% of that answer. All right. Next, let's take a phone call. Hello, Jello. This is Mr. Dutchwood from Lodi, California. My question is the F-16. As you look at different models, there's so many iterations of the F-16 over time. But the, what I do notice is there's like four veins in front of the cockpit window. What are those and why are those? And why do some have them and others don't? Does that mean there's a different role that they play? Anyway, what are those four strakes in front of the canopy? Thank you. All right, Dutch, those small blades you are referring to on some F-16s are also on some F-A-18s, and they are the Combined Interrogator Transponder Antennas. Now, on the Super Hornets, they are hidden in a pizza box, as we call it, but on some of the F-18s, the F-16s you identified, those little blade antennas are simply to transmit your identification friend or foe, but also to query others to find out, and that can help you to identify whether they are friend or foe. So. Probably more to it that I could go round and round on, but frankly, uh, that's the gist of it. All right, Matt Kishore asks, in cockpit videos of aircraft carrier catapult launches, show the pilot's head dip forward a little bit as the airplane leaves the catapult track. Is this because the aircraft has suddenly lost the extra oomph of the catapult and is slowing down suddenly, or some other reason? 
Well, Matt, the physicists out there might correct my terminology here. It's not that it's slowing down or losing the oomph. It's that it's no longer accelerating. And so pilots will sometimes just put their heads back or they might even try to hold it forward just for fun. And once that acceleration is done, it acts, I guess, I don't know if this is technically correct, but like a mini deceleration in so much as you're no longer accelerating. So again, I wasn't a physicist, I was a math major, but it's just that change in the fact that you're no longer accelerating because you do accelerate all the way down the cat stroke. And once it's done, then you're not accelerating anymore. And that, in my opinion, explains that little head bob you're asking about. All right, we'll finish then with a phone call for this week. Oh, hi, Jello. My name is Silas, and I am in Phoenix. I had a question about the OV-10 Bronco. What was it used for? What was its purpose? Why was it developed? All right, Silas, thanks for the phone call. That's very brave of you to submit that. And the answers to all your questions can be found in episode 138, which was on the OV-10 Bronco, and that was back in April of this year. All right. Well, that will do it for announcements and listener questions. You've waited long enough. Let's get to our discussion on racing jets today with Rick and Peter. One quick caveat, as you know, here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, people love to be outdoors if they're pilots. And some of our guests do that. And when they do, we get weed blowers and blue jays like today and dogs barking and everything else. But I know you'll forgive us. So here we go with racing jets. For the past 150 episodes here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we have spoken about many different uses for military aircraft, particularly fighter jets. Of course, we've got air combat, we have air interdiction, air to surface, we even have deterrence and shows of force, and of course, air shows, demonstrations, and generating interest in the next generation of folks. But one thing we have not yet spoken about is competing in fighter jets. And that's what we're talking about today with racing jets. And we have two gentlemen joining us to help do that. First is Peter Sturavides, call sign Tool. Welcome, Tool. Welcome. Hello. Good to be here. Thanks. Glad to have you. And with you is Rick Van Dam. How's it going, Rick? Great. Great day. Fantastic. Well, I am really excited about this discussion because I've been to the Reno Air Races many times over the past couple of decades. In fact, I even participated in one once as the air power demo from the local base there in Fallon. We came by and they let off the uh, pyrotechnics and we pretended to fight and attack and do all these things. But I've never been in the position that you gentlemen have been, and we're going to talk all about that. But first, let's get your backgrounds. So Rick, just for fun, we'll start with you. Where are you from? What did you do leading up to today? And what are you doing today? Well, born and raised in Albuquerque, graduated high school, went to the uh, U.S. Air Force Academy. From the academy to pilot training, from pilot training, I went in the uh, F-4 Phantom, flew the Phantom, eight years active duty, joined the Nevada Air National Guard, and moved out here to Reno. And I've been here in Reno for uh, the last number of years and retired from the National Guard and then was an airline pilot. But have been one way or the other involved in the air races for over 30 years. Oh, fantastic. So, Rick, there are some videos floating around YouTube of F-4 Phantoms flying low over Pyramid Lake not far from you. I assume that wasn't you. I uh, believe the Statue of Limitations is out, <laughs> and I cannot be brought into that subject anymore. But I am aware of the videos. Well, for those of you who might not know what we're laughing about, or at least I am, go Google, I don't know what to call it, but probably if you Google 
either Reno or Pyramid Lake F4, you'll see it. And whoever it was, was flying, shall we say, fairly low. It almost looked like they were water skiing with their tail hooks. But at any rate, all right, well, thanks for joining us today, Rick. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Tool, we'll move over to you. Same question. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What'd you do? And what are you doing? Yes, born and raised in North Haven, Connecticut. Saw Top Gun, the first one, joined the Navy in 1995, did a pretty stupid thing. I enlisted. So I did that for four years, flew in the back of a P-3 Orion. Somebody said I should go to uh, ROTC. I was able to do that, picked up an ROTC scholarship. And then from there, I became your typical Hornet guy. And I finished out 20 years of flying the whole time, never did a Pentagon tour, flew straight through my entire career, retired three years ago. I'm now an airline pilot for a major airline, flying the Airbus. I also own my own small company called Up and Ready Flight Support, where I train L-39 and L-29 pilots, as well as people had a race. And I do a little bit of consulting as well on the side, just trying to keep busy. Very good. Now, if you don't mind, I want to jump off subject on something you said, because I hope you said it as a quip, but did you really lament having enlisted first? Because we do have a lot of folks that listen to this show, and not all of them can maybe afford college right away or whatever. So I'm not trying to ask you to backtrack, but maybe just expand on that, because for some folks, that could be an option, and it sounds like it worked for you. No, I say that as a joke, because as you know, Jello, putting out Top Gun right might not have necessarily been to get pilot recruitments, right? It's, right? it's always about getting people to enlist. I would not change the course of my career in any way, shape, or form. I was 18 years old. I was flying around in a P3 Orion at 200 feet with two engines secured. It was awesome. And I wouldn't change it for the world. And I had great people around me that actually took interest in me. And they were the ones that allowed me to get a commission and then ultimately fly Hornets, which is what I wanted to do. Fantastic. Well, and we just had an episode, last episode, on Maritime Patrol. We didn't really dig too deep into the P3 itself, but it was brought up many times. We're glad to cover that subject. All right. Today, we're talking about racing jets, jet racing. I don't know which order we'll call this. Also, the Reno Air Races in general. And I just figure, as I sometimes do, we'll go through the five W's, the who, what, when, where, why. We'll add a how. We might even add a which. And we're not going to do it in that order. So let's just start with, and Rick, sounds like you've been doing it maybe the a little longer. The jet class specifically, what is it and what can you tell me about it? Maybe even a little history. Well, the jet class was started basically in the first demonstration race in 2000, so just over 20 years ago. And it was to uh, bring the fastest motorsport in the world into the Reno competition. We started with one heat of seven racers. They were all selected. We put them all in L39s. Now, the Reno Air Races have been going on for over 55 years, so it's the newest race class and is now the fastest race class. Did it start in 2000, rather, as sort of a demonstration, in a sense, like a, hey, look what we can do, or was it competitive right from the beginning? What is kind of interesting is we had an incident in 1999, and we had to reevaluate the entire system. So we came up with a demonstration jet race. We picked seven of the top winners. We picked the unlimited gold winner, who was Skip Holm, a Skunk Works test pilot, winner of the unlimited silver, two astronauts, Hood Gibson from the Navy, Kurt Brown from the Air Force, and all Reno race winners, and put them, picked seven L-39s and had them race with all the same airplanes. And Kurt Brown was our 
Air Force astronaut, was the winner of the first jet race. Oh, wow. Now, Tool, we'll move to you next. Which jets participate in this today? We talked about L-39s. And if you have, of course, anything to add on uh, what Rick just said, feel free. That's one of the challenges of having multiple guests. But <laughs> at any rate, what do we see on the jet class today as far as jets go? Yeah, primarily today we see the 90% solution is your L-39 and your L-29. Okay. People who might be familiar with those platforms might say, well, an L-29 is a incredibly slower airplane. It was the predecessor to the L-39, but we've got them highly modified. So uh, we've taken engines out of other aircraft and stuffed them in that small, lighter airframe, and they go really fast. <laughs> As Rick just mentioned, Kurt Brown, the first winner of the jet class, that was in race 77, which is currently the airplane that I race at Reno and just won first place gold in last year. So the airplanes are alive and well, out there racing 20 years later and going faster than they ever have. In addition to that, we see a variety of some other aircraft. We see the Soko jet. Rick, help me out. What other aircraft have we seen? We have the British Vampire. We've had several Fuga jets. We have the Polish Iskra, all subsonic military light attack to trainer aircraft. I thought I saw a T-2 Buckeye few years ago when I was at the races. Was that ever one of them? First of all, to start the jet race, we had to convince not only Reno and the Reno Air Race Association, RARA, of the viability of jets, we had to be able to validate that we could do it safely. So we had to convince the uh, FAA and the insurance industry. <laughs> so the initial plan was we had L-39s and we validated the airplanes and their ability to run the uh, approximate eight-mile race course at Reno safely. In 2006, we expanded to other aircraft. We introduced that year the T-2 Buckeye and the T-33. There were several limitations came into play, and we had to restrict certain uh, aircraft due to their wake turbulence. Initially, they were, because of the size of the aircraft and the wake turbulence, in the confined space of the Reno race course, we had to limit the gross weight of the aircraft. So the T-2 came, Rick Sugden from Navy uh, background. He won his uh, in 2007 and then had to retire as a winner. <laughs> okay. Just on a side note, is that airplane still flying around, maybe doing air shows or anything? It's still flying. It's up in Driggs, Idaho, and Rich still owns it and still flies it occasionally. Cool. Well, I flew the T-2 in flight training. I'm guessing, Tool, did you fly the T-2 as well? I was T-45s from the beginning. Oh, wow. Okay. They were still around. I guess I'm aging myself, but... They were around. All right. So we talked about the what. I think when we get to the how in a little bit is where we'll spend most of our time. But we've talked about the what and the which. Now, where? You just mentioned the Reno Air Races, Rick. So I guess that answers that. But is there not somewhere else? I mean, this is an exciting thing for those who get to attend. Why isn't it somewhere else around the country? But maybe it has to do with the footprint on the ground. I don't know. Well, from the earliest days of aviation, one of the very first things that started over 100 years ago was the Snyder Cup over in Europe. So air racing was one of the very first things that as soon as we got airplanes, we turned them into reconnaissance, we turned them into bombers, and then we turned them into racers. So Europe was very significant in the 20s and 30s developing air racing. After World War II, the races continued and uh, became very famous in the late 40s and 50s 
with the Cleveland air races. Those were stopped and they were flown out of uh, just on the Cleveland Lakeshore. In 1964, Reno resurrected the air racing from a U.S. point of view and been going here continuously since 1964. Reno is the only event in the U.S. where we have a full complement of six fields of classes of aircraft racing, from the slowest formula and biplane up to the fastest motorsport jet. Reno is the only place in the world where we currently race jets. Several other venues internationally have done demo races, such as Wanaka down in the South Island of New Zealand. But Reno is the only continuous place where we operate this many classes in a truly race format. And it takes place there at Stead, just north of Reno. And did that used to be a military base back in, say, World War II? Stead Air Force Base, it was actually named to a local Reno guy, Bill Stead. He was killed in a uh, P-51 accident, and his brother was instrumental in getting the Reno races moved to Stead after the Air Force shut it down. The Air Force used the Stead Airport as their primary survival training site, and it was actually the location of the last movie that Marilyn Monroe made the misfits was made at stead so there is quite a bit of a heritage out at the stead airport but the air force closed it it was opened as a public use airport and in 64 at the encouragement of bill stead's brother they moved the air races there well people have been enjoying the venue ever since and that's what 60 years now almost so i hope they'll throw a big party in 2024 now peter when does this take place it's once a year and it's coming up It's once a year. It's every September. It's always in September. And for us, the racers, we get out there about a week before the racing actually starts. But the big days for racing are September 13th through the 19th. And that is the window. Race Sunday is what we call it. That's September, I believe, uh, 18th, where we have all the title races that day. But racing starts on Wednesday, that week prior, and, and runs for a solid five days. It's always the weekend after our annual tailhook convention, which I'll be up there for. I'll go home for a few days and then I'll be back. And so I'm looking forward to being at the races this year and hopefully get over to your all's airplanes and shake your hands and uh, get to chat a little bit about this interview. And of course, it's no coincidence that we're releasing this at the end of August to hopefully get folks inspired to go out and spend the day or a couple of days out there because it's always a good time. It's like an air show, right? But races also, in fact, what do they have? Demonstrations in between heats? We do. And uh, this year, there's no feature air show this year from one of the big performers. Many times the Thunderbirds will be there. The Blues Mm -hmm. will be there. They usually alternate. Mm -hmm. This year, they're not. However, we do have a Super Hornet demo. And Rick, I believe a couple other demos as well. Do you recall what those are? I'm pretty sure we have the F-35 is going to be demoing as well as the Super Hornet. Oh, cool. I think that's easy because I believe the Pilot Bayo and that F-35 demo team, I think they're just out of Salt Lake. That should be fairly easy to get to. But And she performed here last year, and we expect her back again. And apparently it's a fairly large footprint to get one of those feature teams, the Blues or the Thunderbirds, not just for the point in the show, but all the vehicles and everything else they need and the hotels. But okay, good. So Rick, back to you. Both of you happen to be military background. I'm military. If I wanted to come race, could I? I mean, where do racers come from? And talk to me a little bit about what they need to, well, just start with getting qualified, but then I want to ask you later about currency and proficiency as well. 
it's a highly demanding event. We uh, kind of refer to it as very similar to the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds being close formation, but we call this uncooperative formation. <laughs> you have a flight lead, the aircraft next to you, you just don't want them there, as opposed to a good flight lead that is very good to his wingman. Because of that, our racers come from two major backgrounds. They come from the military, predominantly a lot of the fighter guys that want to continue flying formation. And then, as was memorialized in a book, they were called the uh, Blue Bloods and the Thoroughbreds. The Blue Bloods are the people that have money, they bought their own airplanes, and they have a hankering to go fast. So we do a lot of training to bring everyone up to speed, up to safe formation standards. There are several organizations in the U.S., such as the uh, FAST organization, that does a tremendous job of making formation flying not only available, but safely done in the civilian environment. So our racers come from generally those two community, the uh, military and that, but we do run them through an extensive training program before we let them anywhere near the race course. That makes sense. All right. So, Tool, let's use you as an example. You retired a couple of years ago. I don't know if you were racing before you retired. I would assume not, but you can tell me. But walk us through in as much detail as you think listeners will be interested in, in what you had to do to go from a Navy fleet F-18 pilot to now an annual Reno Air Racer. Yeah, the first time I ever attended the Reno Air Races was as a racer. I had never even been there before. And wow. quite honestly, you know, when you're in the Navy, the blinders are kind of on, mm -hmm. you know, you're focused on the mission, your department head tour, all that stuff that you talk about in your podcast, right? So all of a sudden you retire and the blinders are off. That happened a little bit sooner for me. I was actually still on active duty while I was racing at Reno, which was pretty cool. So Commodore let me peace out for a couple of weeks and go race in uh, 2016 and 17, which was awesome. So to answer your question, step one, find a ride. No matter what you race, whether it's cars or boats, you got to find a ride. So luckily, I found a local guy who is as, pretty much as crazy as I am. He had an L39. He came up to me one day, and it was out of the blue. He said, can you teach me how to fly this? I'll be 100% honest with you. I didn't know what an L39 was, and I said, sure. And then I went home and Googled it right away. So obviously, we're a fast study coming from Hornets. So three flights in an L39. Got a check ride, got qualified in the airplane, spent the next 15 hours getting comfortable with it locally, and then attended Pylon Racing School, which is at Reno on the race course every June, where candidates such as myself will, number one, get training, and number two, more importantly, be evaluated for your competence, your decision-making, and your safety. So completed that successfully. And then at the completion of Pylon Racing School, as long as you pass, you're invited to come race in September. So from there, you go back home, you work on your ride some more, you make it look good because it's half air show, half air race. And then you bring everything, your team back out there in September and you race. We had a very successful first year, got rookie of the year, which is outstanding. And the airplane finished first place in silver, which we break up speeds into gold, silver, and bronze based on speeds. Okay. And uh, first year was first place silver for us. All right. And then what about, let's say you raced last September, and then you went off and flew your Airbus for a year. 
what happens when this September rolls around? I assume you don't just show up on that Wednesday and say, okay, here I go, right? Yeah, it's constant work. It's year round. Fortunately, the team that I'm on, our aircraft is based in Reno and it lives in Reno. That's a luxury that many of the other teams do not have. What I am able to do is we're able throughout the year to go back to Reno. We usually go about every two months, we'll go back to Reno and we'll do two things. We'll train out in the desert. We'll get low and fast in accordance with FARs, of course, and we'll work on the airplane. There's a lot of R&D involved, both aerodynamic R&D, how can we cut weight, and how can we go faster. Anybody involved in racing knows that you can't sit on your laurels. So we won first place 2022, or 2021, excuse me, but on the flight home, we were already thinking about 2022. What are we going to do? How are we going to get two more knots? How are we going to get five more knots? That's the prep involved. Rick, does that jive with your experiences? And uh, you said you've been racing for 30 years. It's probably changed a bit, but is that what you went through as well? Very similar, except slightly different, is I was in the Nevada Air National Guard, and I started in the mid-80s. We were race control. It was three of the uh, F-4 pilots. We were the voice of race control. So we were watching all the uh, pilots out there have fun. And then in... uh, Retired out of the Guard in 1996, and three of us, all F-4 pilots who no longer had an F-4 to fly, are watching the races from race control going, why are they having fun and we're not? (laughs) So the three of us, Jeff Turney, who is very active in the Reno Air Races, and Tool knows him well. Lee Beal sat there in race control, and we devised the sport class which was the first new edition of race classes. And they first raced in 1998 and it's the largest race class in Reno. And they are the amateur built aircraft. And we have them going over 400 miles an hour. And then it was two years after the start of that, that literally Jeff Turney and I were air boss and deputy air boss. After uh, the races that year, we sat in the desert Inn. Literally, it was one of those moments where you actually have the napkin on the table and we uh, devised the jet class as a way to get us back flying tactical airplanes on the race course. So both Jeff and myself race, but we were the uh, initiators of the uh, class. All right. So let's spend now a few minutes, however long it takes. And I'm sure there's some great stories as well on the how. And before we do, all right, so don't punch me through the computer for asking this, but you flip around the channels once in a while and you see these oversized people beating each other up in a ring. I think it's called WWE. They tell me it's real, but also wonder, I don't think so. So like I said, forgive me, but is this really racing or are you guys just going out there and taking turns like, okay, it's your turn to win. Hold on, you know, lead on the right. Is it choreographed or is it a no kidding competition? I'll answer that. It is 100% as aggressive as it can be. We all consider ourselves gentlemen in the class. Mm -hmm. We'll get along on the ground just fine, but this will be my fourth year there. And once you close that canopy, it's a competition, 100%. We can talk a little bit more about that and how that competition works on the race course, but it does get hostile at times. As Rick said, it's a non-cooperative formation. Others will call it a hostile formation because you are using every trick that you've learned over the previous 20 years of your career to try to disrupt that other aircraft's line, if you will, line in kind of parentheses there. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about the line as well, but 
it is 100% air racing. Well, I assumed so, but I, I wanted to have a little fun with that. Go ahead, Rick. Let me iterate that the airplane is what we spend 11 months on is making the airplane go faster. And pretty much what you end up with the middle of September is where it's going to go. And it's a gentleman among ourselves as to how we treat one another. But on the race course, it is 100%. It's what can I get that motor to do now? And we are pushing every bit to be as fast as we can. But we also have the limitations of just the aircraft. This is not NASCAR. Bumping is not allowed. And we're you know very safety conscious because of the catastrophic nature of anything that might happen. But I can tell you from every single competitor, as soon as we're told, gentlemen, you have a race, it's competitive all the way. So let's talk through whether it's a heat or a race or whatever the appropriate terminology would be. And I'll just give some assumptions that you can either spend some time on or not. But I assume there's probably some sort of meeting in the morning. Of course, even leading up to that day, there's probably briefings and maybe even slideshows and rules of engagement or whatever. But you probably, I would think, meet that morning. And then when it's time, everybody mans their aircraft. They go out, they rendezvous on the chase plane, and then he takes you in. So for that phase of it, Tool, let's go back to you. What do we need to know about those procedures? And I'm sure there's a lot to it, but again, you know, whatever you think our listeners will find interesting. Absolutely. So like you said, there is a morning brief. Everybody has to attend the brief. We have a rule, no brief, no fly. So if you miss that, yep. you're not flying. Then you're waiting for your race for that day to occur. And the race class, the group of these jets, this year, for example, it's 18. They'll be broken up into groups of six based on speed, based on qualifying, just like you would qualify at uh, a motorsport race. So qualifying happens earlier in the week, and then you'll get placed into gold, silver, and bronze. So for an example, if it's a gold race that's coming up, it's usually later in the day, sometime in the afternoon. And we do take those environmentals into account because the temperature spread in Reno is very different morning versus afternoon. So we'll man up the aircraft, and then we'll launch a six ship, like you said, and then we'll join up on the lead, or the pace in this case. And we spend a majority of our time at Pylon Racing School working on this rendezvous because, as you talked about, not everybody's a military pilot. And a six-ship formation, even for a military pilot, yeah, we do it, but we typically were two-ship, four-ship. So we're now launching, joining up in a six or more ship formation, and we have about two minutes to get on board because the show must go on. And that pace airplane will take off, fly around Peavine Mountain, and come right on down and bring us into what we call the start chute. Everybody will pull up line abreast. All heads are looking left, lining up helmets uh, across with the pace aircraft. And at a certain point, pace will then say, jet racers, you have a race. They'll pitch up. And then I wish I could see it. But at that point, all six heads <laughs> snap forward to the first pylon. And then everybody's left hand is going full power at that point. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the scenario for the start. And there's rules involved. We must maintain line abreast. So good formation keeping there. And if you're not line abreast, the pace will pull you out of the event or the race because there's an advantage there, obviously. And that's it. So that's the start sequence. 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Hey, Rick, in your 30 years of doing this, have you ever come across someone who's sort of sandbagged it? In other words, he could be a gold class, but he just takes his time coming around and qualifying so he can be in the silver to make sure he wins? I would hope not, but... That has occurred. It's few and far between. Okay. And usually that gets dealt with administratively. Well, let's stick with you, Rick. So, gentlemen, you have a race. Ford goes the throttle in your heads. And gosh, I can't even imagine this, but like you said, right? Rubbing is not racing in the jet class in Reno. And you certainly don't want to put someone out of control like in NASCAR because that could be life or death. But talk to me about like what is happening. I mean, you've got to what? Have your head on a swivel, look out for everybody. Is there some etiquette on if I'm a little ahead of you, I expect you to deconflict? I mean, just talk to me about the actual racing. It's formalized in the rules. We call it the contract. Everyone coming out of military formation flying know that you have a flight lead and you have a wingman. And the wingman is responsible for the separation of the aircraft. In racing, we have a very dynamic lead position. You may be lead right now, but as soon as I pass you, I am now lead. We refer to it as a contract. And basically, the inside aircraft has the right of way. The aircraft on the outside or to any, we're turning left the whole time. The aircraft to the right is responsible for the separation of the aircraft. And he can only cut in on the flight path of the passing aircraft when he has full separation between the aircraft and he is separating. So he has to give that inside aircraft the right of way until he can safely pass the airplane. So you do need some velocity to get ahead of him. And very often, because we're turning, we're going about around about an eight-mile oval that takes us about 55 seconds to get around at race speed. So we're turning almost 90% of the time. You might have a straightaway and pull up even with the guy, and then you know as soon as you turn that, that the inside aircraft going on a shorter path will have an advantage. So you have to play that very dynamically. And very often we will call, my race is race five, American Spirit, and I'll say 77. Five is on your right. 77 may or may not acknowledge my position there. And if I'm coming up rapidly, I'll say 77, five's on your right. If he sees me pass clearly, he'll say, five, you're clear, which then authorizes me to pull in. And now he has taken responsibility for the separation of the aircraft. Short of that, I have to acknowledge his position and stay clear of his flight path. 
So you can, I hope, forgive my earlier question comparing you to WWE, because while I agree with you, and I'm sure if I were in your cockpits, if you will, I also would want to win, right, and do whatever it takes. But there is some degree of gentlemanness. Maybe is not the right word. I'm sure there are female racers, but there's some etiquette, right? Because again, we know the consequences of this. And I haven't even asked you yet, Tool, what type of speeds in your class and what type of altitudes are you racing at? Because if something happens, I have to think you don't have a lot of time. Right. The race course is defined as 50 feet AGL to 250 feet AGL. So that is the confines of the race course. Hmm. Up to you whether you fly it at 50 feet or 250 feet. And the speeds that Rick and I are running at are over 500 miles an hour. Wow. 502.5 specifically for my aircraft. And Rick's been a little bit faster than that. And when you bring up that discussion point that Rick was talking about, yes, just to give it a little bit more fidelity, there are rules, if you will. We won't pass on the inside. We must be predictable, right? So Mm -hmm. all passes will be to the right or to the outside of the turn. And then the acknowledgement on the radio is obviously the right thing to do to keep everybody safe. But short of that, you don't have to be smooth, right? So those are like techniques. I don't have to be a smooth lead. I can roll into a turn quick and leave that wingman on my right shoulder kind of out there, if that makes sense. Well, and keep going because when we fly together in our F-18s, not only is there that, but there's also, right, the F-18 is fantastic for let's call it an airspeed excursion, right? I can slap back on the stick, particularly below corner speed, and I can point my nose, but I'm going to bleed a lot of energy. Right. Talk to me about stick and throttle in this race. Is it just your left hand's full forward and that's it? And you're trying to just be smooth with the controls or at every pylon, are you reefing back on the stick? Are you using those 200 feet that you have or are you staying low or staying high? Yeah, you know, we could talk all day about this, right? And I won't sure. give away all the trade secrets, but you brought <laughs> up some incredibly important points. The first one is there's strategy involved. My strategy as a caveman, if you will, is so simple. My throttle is always at the stop. I'm a one or a zero. Some guys will manipulate it. They'll look at temperatures. I have the luxury of being able to fly the airplane year round. So we tune it to put out every ounce of power that we can. And the owner of my airplane allows me to do that. So that one is solved, full power. Once the heads go forward, full power, I'm never touching the throttle again, period. The second thing is I fly low. And the reason I want to fly low is because if I fly low, I can fly closer to the pylon. If you think about a cone, if you were standing at the base of this telephone pole, there's a 55-gallon drum that's at the top of this 50-foot telephone pole, and the judges are looking through that drum. So take it to the extreme. Let's say I'm at 2,000 feet. They're going to be able to see me through that 55-gallon drum. That's a cylinder. But if I'm down low at 51 feet, I can fly closer laterally to that pylon, which means a shorter course for me. You now have to temper that with, I cannot go around this pylon and pull the stick back and pull G because I'm immediately going to scrub energy. So it's a balance between minimizing the G and rolling in and out of every turn as smoothly as possible so you're not sticking an aileron out into that slipstream versus flying the tightest course that you can. G loading at the speeds that we're at, we're somewhere between three and five Gs on the race course. There's bumps on the backside of the race course. The G meter will always come back at nine Gs in an L29 at the speeds that we're at. But those are bumps. They're not sustained. But we're usually sustained three to five right in that window. 
And I think to add on, uh, particularly since you're both Hornet drivers, you know that you can bury the stick and turn that nose, but you lose all the energy. So it becomes very important out there, depending on the wing loading of the different type of airplane, how you preserve speed, but still get the optimum turn out of the aircraft. So it's a lot of practice and finesse to try not to scrub the airspeed as we come around. What about the altitudes? You said earlier 50 feet. I assume, are there self-reporting systems on the aircraft where if you go above or below, it turns on a red light in someone's control box or something? Or are there ground that are maybe watching and calling violations? What about you, Rick? Do you want to help us with that one? To reiterate what Tool was talking about, there are nine pylons around the race course, and each pylon has four judges that are at the base, and they actually look through to determine a pylon cut. They have sole authority on that. In addition to that, our contest committee has nine observers around the race course. They watch for low altitude or high altitude or erratic flying. And the contest committee has the uh, power to disqualify anyone based on a low altitude infraction, a high altitude infraction, or what they view as erratic or dangerous flying can result in a disqualification. So those are independent and they are non-protestable. And then we have confines that we have to stay within. So we keep the airplane within a airspace, but it's defined for the safety of the environment and the crowd watching it. And we talked earlier about you don't brief, you don't fly. If you are called out on something like that, is that pretty much it for you? Is it like a one and done kind of thing? As far as maybe you can still race later or whatever, but as far as winning, probably? It's based on the infraction. If it's intentional or grievous, it can result in disqualification from the uh, air show. And in that case, you are asked to take your airplane and actually leave Reno. (laughs) That is the extreme penalty, and it has occurred occasionally. Most often, it is a disqualification for the heat you were in that day. And your disqualification hurts you because then you are put at the back of the heat for the next day's race. Okay, that makes sense. Keep going, Rick, and let's talk about safety in so much as if you either witness something somebody else does that's unsafe, or if you have, let's say, an emergency or a malfunction, talk to me about that. And I'm sure, right, these are things that have been briefed as far as, hey, if you've got a problem, you pitch out or you go right or whatever. I'm sure there are procedures. And what would be interesting for us to know for those who are listening to this, but also maybe they're watching. Reno actually, from the air show and air racing environment, stands out as the top event in the world from a safety point of view. It's very dynamic, very complex environment, but the safety environment that we put on the event. If you're racing on the race course and you're between 50 feet and 200 feet and you have any problem, the protocol, the procedure, and we are adamant on it, you immediately call a mayday and you pitch up to the middle of the race course. It gets you out of the way of the other racers. The racers stay on the race course because it makes them predictable. And then we have a very extensive crash fire rescue environment all around the airport. And we have three runways at Stead. We anticipate that you'll pick one of them The Reno Air Races, particularly the crash fire, promise you any place you go down, they will have a vehicle on your airplane within 60 seconds. 
Wow. They very much pride themselves on their capability. So it's all done with practice briefings and following the prescribed procedures for the races. That's why the uh, Pylon Racing School and the training ahead of time has been so successful. Are these aircraft that you gentlemen racing equipped with ejection seats? I mean, the T2 Buckeye was in your race class. Is that a luxury you're afforded? That actually, it's a sensitive issue because majority of the airplanes 20 years ago had current ejection seats. The FAA took the position that they did not want us to have live ejection seats at the air races. So they actually banned and made us disarm our seats ahead of time. We are actually in the process of being back with the FAA, trying to get the ejection seats back authorized. At least if you want to have one and can keep it up to uh, standards, you will be permitted. But at the current time, they are prohibited by the rules. Okay. Now, Tool, when you finish a race, whether first or last, what happens then, right? We talked about the brief and the takeoff and the rendezvous and gentlemen, you have a race. In attending these races in the past, they look like they pitch up and then they take turns landing. I don't know if it's every man for himself, but talk to me about the end of the race and then if there's a debrief. So everybody comes around that home pylon, in our case, after six laps, and there's a a lot of adrenaline running through your body at that point. So for the last five minutes or so, you've been doing 500 miles an hour in this formation, and then the race is over. So it's an immediate pitch up, throttle comes back, and we go up to what's called the cool down, which is 7,500 feet or above MSL. That is an opportunity for you to cool down your aircraft and for you to catch your breath. We didn't really talk about this yet, but at least in my airplane, it's about 135 to 140 degrees for that time. So it's a moment to kind of get your breath back under you, get the airplane slowed down, and then we will sequence. At this time, we're now cooperative, and we will talk to each other. Hey, I have two insight. I have three insight. And we'll follow a very predictable and standardized entry back to land in a particular order, and then back to our pits. And is there a debrief? Absolutely, there's a debrief. And just like a military debrief, we'll start off with safeties right off the bat. At least that's the way I conduct my debriefs, and that's pretty much how we do it. So we'll start with safeties. We'll bring those right to the surface. We'll talk about them. Nobody's going to leave with any questions or confusion. We hope it's a clean race. If it is a clean race, the debrief can be as short as Just a couple minutes. Hey, great job, guys. Number two, your separation was a little long on takeoff. Tighten it up. Cool. Got that. If there are safeties, then that'll be discussed further. Penalties will be assessed. So if there are penalties from the contest committee, those will then come probably about 10 or 15 minutes after the race. And then that'll set up the order for the next race. Now, Tool, let's nerd out for a second, because earlier you talked about looking to save weight, or really what you want to do is add speed. And of course, one way to do that is to save weight. Now, I'm no aeronautical engineer, but if you just, you know, are racing, let's say one of Rick's old F4s, and you said, well, we don't need to haul this tail hook around. Let's just take that off. Oh, we don't need this. Let's just take that. At some point, right, it's not just a car, it's an airplane, and you're moving center of gravity, you're affecting things. Is part of this some sort of engineer or somebody who's looking at the things you're doing and saying, you can't just replace this light bulb with an LED because that two ounces affects how this airplane was flight tested. 
Right. We operate in a very different environment. Every one of these aircraft are experimental aircraft, classified by the FAA as being basically non-airworthy, but still certified. So what does that mean? That means we can generally do anything we want to the airplane as long as we have flight tested it. So I can attach a mailbox to the top of my L-29, go out and flight test it, and as long as it continues to fly, I sign it in the logbook as being airworthy. So what does that mean? That means we take out the generator. We run strictly off battery. We take off the ram air turbine that's used as an emergency backup system. We take out the air conditioning system. We take out the back seat. We take out everything that does not contribute to the airplane flying. And that's why it's 130 plus degrees in my airplane. Now, not everybody does that. We're talking about Rick and I at a very competitive level. If you're running around in your stock L39 and you're not worried about winning first place in gold, you're probably going to retain your air conditioning system so that you can be comfortable during your race. You're not going to chop the wings. You know, you're not going to take a foot off of your wingspan, <laughs> which is also what we do, right? So Oh. That's kind of an example. I assume a lot of it too is probably a nice wax job, right? And maybe even different fasteners that are more aerodynamic. But yeah, sorry, go ahead, Rick. No, I was going to iterate on the L39 that uh, American Spirit, we've actually through just exactly what Tool said. We spent 11 months working on the speed of the aircraft. So we have actually modified and we have the airplane now from when we first raced it. It's going 100 miles an hour faster than when we initially had it. And it's through aerodynamic designs and tests. But believe me, anytime we do something like this, they are extensively researched. We are bringing in the best aerodynamicists that we know, and we flight test them extensively before we get anywhere near Reno in the uh, race course. So these are not fly-by-night attempts at just going fast. They are very concerted, very big efforts. Weight and balance, the CG of the aircraft is very significant, and it has to be flight-tested through the full envelope. Now, I wouldn't say a gold jet racer is exactly your everyday flyer for comfort, like Tool says with the air conditioner and the backup emergency systems in the aircraft. But the airplane is flight tested to maximize its speed at Reno safely. Let's stick with you, Rick. In your time flying, I'm sure you've seen different types of emergencies. What's a common one? I think it was Tool that was talked about pitching up and going to the center or the inside. Does the race need to stop if you're basically, let's say you're I don't know how many engines these aircraft have, but if they have one and they lose it, does everybody else have to knock it off so you can land or can you land and the race goes on? No, just the opposite. We have learned that the safest place, there can be up to eight airplanes on the race course at any one time. The emergency or mayday aircraft will pitch up to the center while the other seven airplane remain on the race course. It makes them the most predictable location, Mm -hmm. and we always have a safety chase. That was where Mr. Bob Hoover got part of his claim to fame, was he was the voice of the Reno Air Races, and where the words, gentlemen, you have a race, came from Mr. Hoover. And he would act as a safety airplane to come and join up on the Mayday aircraft and assist them with the landing. But all the other aircraft remain on the race course racing during the race. Can I throw something in there? 2017, I was racing in both the T6 class and the jet class in the same year. 
So my schedule was T6 race. And then immediately following, I was going to taxi my T6 into the jet pit, jump out of the T6, jump into the L39 and complete my race. I had a brand new built T6 Texan with 35 hours on a hundred plus thousand dollar race engine fired up and ready to go. Well, on lap three at 50 feet, right in front of the home pylon, my engine decides to catastrophically fail and my prop just stops. It's straight up at 50 feet. Immediately pitched up, just like Rick is talking about. Couldn't believe this was happening. I've never had an engine failure in flight in all my years of flying. And here I am in front of these people and reverted back to my training at Pylon Racing School because we practice this maneuver over and over again every June. Pitched up, traded airspeed for altitude, dead stick landing on the off-duty runway. Before I can even get out of the airplane, crash fire and rescues there. I asked him for a ride in the fire truck to the jet pit, got in the L-39, completed my race. (laughs) So everything worked exactly the way it was supposed to work. And this isn't an isolated story. I'm sure Rick's seen it over the years many times. But as crazy as it sounds, an engine failure at Reno is really a non-event because we have essentially six runways to pick from. Well, sometimes the winds out there can get crazy, but at any rate, you're usually in a position to go. All right, cool. Well, let's round out our how with some listener questions. These are from folks that financially support the Fighter Pilot Podcast on Patreon. And one of their perks is they get to ask questions because they know in advance I'll have this interview. So John Clark asks, Rick, I'll put this to you. Is there a practical, quote, speed limit for jets on this course, especially for the turn at the end of the Valley of Speed. So, right, aircraft are a trade-off, of course, but at some point, based on aircraft speed, but also Gs, is there a practical speed limit? Yes, there is. We're very involved with the FAA, and they actually have a section, the FARs that cover this. It's under the 8900 series has to do with air shows. And so we take an object and we actually... If something fell off your airplane, there is a prescribed formula that defines a safety radius. Right now, that for the current race course going up to 250 feet and going into the valley speed, particularly turn eight coming up to the home pylon with the crowd just to the uh, south, is we are limited to 525 miles an hour on the race course. Tool said, like this past year, he won the race at 5.02. So we are very active with the FAA and actually with the certification of what airplanes we can authorize to fly. You can go around the race course in your Hornet at probably 600. You'll be pulling a lot of Gs, but it can go there. And so we have to take that in mind from an administrative point of view so we can race, race fairly, but still do it safely. And that makes sense. And right, an F-18 with its AOA ability or an F-22 could probably zip around it. But there's, like you said, the course. And then again, I think the first time I attended was in 2000, but it used to be out in the middle of the desert. Now, increasingly, I see more and more housing or whatever developments is encroachment a problem. They might This might not be either of your expertise, but probably Rick, as in the times that you've been out there, is encroachment an issue on Stead? Yes, it is. When I started out there, we only had one deadline, show line, and that was for the crowd on the south side. As the people have moved in, particularly what you can see from the stands to the west, 
is down the valley of speed. So we've had to pull an additional buffer to move us in off of those houses. There's a housing development to the east of the airport that from the grandstands you can't see, but we have an east show line now. So all those come into effect that have cut in and we have adapted the race course. The uh, last time we did a major race course adaption was about 20 years ago. It moved us in, particularly from the east, which actually made for a faster race course, but a safer race course for the uh, crowd. Kind of the term we use, we soften the turn going into the home pylon, coming up to the crowd, and we soften the turn to the east from the uh, what's the Lemon Valley resident. So we're very much involved with the community, where the houses are, and adapting the race course so we can do it safely and well within the guidelines we're given from the FAA. Tool, I'll put Wesley Quinlan's question to you because I think you answered it, actually. With planes performance so closely matched, can you describe the theory for negotiating the course to try to gain an advantage, bank angle, altitude, throttle settings, and Gs? I think you pretty much covered that earlier. We did cover that. Um, the only thing I can maybe add to that For an advantage, I think you have to capitalize on what your skill level is and what your background is. So the fact that for Rick and I being military pilots, we're not better than anyone else out there, but we have the pleasure and the luxury, I wouldn't say pleasure, but we've flown under some terrible conditions. Let's just put it that way, right? Whether that's pitching decks, high winds, all these different things. So I like to always look back in whatever I do and say, well, what are my personal strengths? I'm always praying for the worst, nastiest wins possible at Reno (laughs) because I believe that gives me a competitive advantage. So that's kind of a roundabout way answering Wesley's question. I want the worst conditions possible because that's where I thrive as somebody else might want a smooth air day. Well, if we have a smooth air day, now we're taking it and we're putting it in who's got the faster airplane versus who's got the better flying skills. And I'd rather capitalize on that, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, just on that note, what is, and this probably could, again, be its own discussion, but very quickly, what is more important, the man in the box, as the expression goes, or the box itself? I mean, if you had been in one of your competitors' aircraft the year you won and was rookie of the year, would you have still won, do you think? Or does the aircraft make a big difference? The aircraft makes a difference, but At the higher end, at the competitive level, it's the person in the box. One pylon cut, one misjudgment when you're rolling into a turn, you're done. It's a 12-second penalty. I mean, you are done. So if you cut one pylon, you're not going to win. If you get a low-flying call, you're not going to win. I think it's the man in the box. I'll turn it over to Rick, who is uh, a lot more time than me to answer as well. Having done it for a long time, there's 11 months of preparation for the airplane, and the airplane can only do so much. But we've seen as we switch pilots and airplanes, there can be 20 and 30 miles an hour difference as to a skilled pilot versus the non-skilled pilot. You're traveling at 800 feet per second. You are aiming for a pylon that is a telephone pole with a 55-gallon drum at it. At that speed and looking at those cues, while you're keeping the ground 50 feet away from you and the other aircraft, I won't say insight, but aware of their location, it becomes very demanding. And so the pilot is instrumental in determining. He might not determine whether he'll be in the gold or silver. That can be the airplane. Mm -hmm. But definitely where in the heat he finishes 
is down to the pilot. You know, sometimes, Rick, I listen as we're interviewing for a clip I can use at the beginning of the podcast to get everybody excited. I think that just might have been it. So thank you. <laughs> All right. Tool, we'll come back to you for our final question. It's from Joe Kunzler, and I probably could help answer this one as well. But why aren't early model F-16s and classic Hornets being raced. And my guess is uh, having actually talked to a company in the US that's trying to bring some Australian F-18s back for Red Air, it's not so easy to get your hands on these because the State Department has a say in that. But anything else for Joe's question? Yes. As Rick alluded to earlier, we have our constraints due to the design of the race course. And there are rules with what can race. A couple of those rules are non-afterburning, and a certain amount of aircraft wing sweep, in which case both the F-16 and the F-18 violate both of those requirements. Wow. So it's a swept wing aircraft and it's afterburning, which are not allowed. And the gun could help get the guy out of your way, I suppose. So oh, that would be beautiful. All right, guys. Well, this is a lot of fun. I'm sure we could go on and on, but let's begin wrapping it up. Uh, you know, Rick, you've been at the Reno Air Races a long time. If folks are listening to this and they want to go, what do they need to know? I mean, get there early, I'm guessing, because there's traffic. Maybe you need to buy tickets early. You know, you don't have to talk about clear plastic bags and all that, but a day at the Reno Air Races, maybe someone's never been. What should they know? Well, one thing, it's September 13th through the 18th this year. Reno, Nevada, Stead Airport is uh, located just to the north of the uh, city. It's a great destination location. The flying starts at 8 o'clock in the morning. There will be airplanes in the air continuously from 8 a.m. till 4.30 in the afternoon. So it's a great day, lots of uh, sunlight, and a great town to visit during that time. Truly, the Reno Air Races, it's one of the only places in the world where you will see this type of event going on, mm -hmm. the fastest motorsport in the world. Well, and there are static displays as well, and I'm guessing you can buy pit passes maybe to go see folks like you when you're not racing. So like I said, I've been there many times. I always enjoy it. And it's like an air show, but different. I think folks should definitely plan to go out. Rick, let's stay with you since you've been involved with it a long time. What's the future for the sport hold? Obviously, little tweaks here and there as it has, but is there anything big coming or what do you see for the future of the Jet Class? We anticipate moving ahead every year. We get a few more people. This year at Pylon Racing School, we had five new Jet applicants. The sport class, which is the fastest growing class, they will have 36 racers at Reno competing in four divisions. So both those classes this year will be the greatest attendance of racers. We have in the six classes over 150 race pilots coming to compete in the six classes. So the event is growing. If you've never seen an air race, this is not Red Bull air racing. It's pylon air racing and truly a one of a kind in the world. And today we focused on the jet class, but Tool, as you said, I don't know the names of the classes, but there's T6, right? There's other modified uh, prop planes that are out there. So there's all kinds of different things to see. Let me ask you this though, Rick, several years ago, there was a very silly movie by Pixar called Planes based on the Cars universe. That shows these planes and these characters racing around the world. It's sort of more like an endurance race, or, or I don't know what you might call it, but are there any other kinds of races out there? Are there um, races like that in the real world? There are several races 
around the world. We do a race over in Portugal every year at the Portugal Air Summit, but we only allow the aerobatic airplanes, the extremes and the extras, and we have the RVs, which is one of the biggest home-built, amateur-built airplanes. Wanaka has a demonstration jet race that they've had several times down in the South Island of New Zealand. But Reno is the only place in the world where you bring everyone together. Now, Red Bull has had a series that they call Red Bull Air Racing, but those are individual aerobatic airplanes flying individually through a chicane-type course where we're doing circuit racing, they're doing chicane, and it's individual. So we're the only ones that put head-to-head airplanes next to one another in a truly competitive race. So that's the future of the races. How about the future for you? Tool, let's start with you. Are you still at the airline and still going to show up in Reno every September? Still at the airline. That allows me to uh, have the resources available to continue to race at Reno. (laughs) I am involved in Reno from a training perspective. So uh, I run the Pylon Racing School in June, which I love doing because I love teaching. And those are skills that the Navy taught me. I've taken those on just to a different role. So I love it. I'll continue to race as long as I feel comfortable doing so. The great part about it is We haven't really talked about this particular subject, but you have to feel comfortable about the people around you. Mm -hmm. So I have to feel comfortable that the five people on my right or maybe on my left, depends where I am, are competent. And as long as I have that feeling, I'll continue to race. But if I don't have that feeling, then it's probably time to not. Well, and I didn't ask you about money, but let's just touch on that very briefly. I mean, can a person of average means find their way into the Reno Air Races? I get the feeling this requires either some pretty big corporate sponsors or some degree of wealth, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, when you watch NASCAR, you know, you've got common folks out there racing, but they always have big names on their cars. Yes, you're right in a couple of respects. I consider myself a, a blue collar worker, right? Retired from the Navy. I'm an airline pilot. I'm fortunate for all those things. Can I afford a race team in a stock L29 that I can buy for maybe $35,000, get it to Reno, spend about $15,000 on fuel? I can probably do it, but I'm not going to win. If you want to win, you either need corporate sponsorship or know somebody who owns an airplane that will allow you to race it. Okay. Well, if you want to give a shout out to any of those, you're certainly welcome to. We're not beholden to anyone on this show. so Yeah, absolutely. Warbirds of Delaware owns my race aircraft, Joe Gano. Couldn't thank him enough. He lets me do whatever I want with the airplane. To that effect, we've been successful. How about you, Rick? What's the future for you? I'm still racing, and I've been with the administration of the uh, class, so tools taken on the uh, job of training. I'm currently the Jet Class Vice President. I'm going to be active at the races. I have a sport class race airplane, and I'm going to be flying some of the uh, pace duties. So it will be a busy air race for me. Well, I look forward to meeting you gentlemen in about a month as we're recording this, but it's just in a couple of weeks as folks will listen. Hopefully they'll all come out as well and see you. And if I can figure out where I'll be, hopefully they can come meet me as well. But this has been a lot of fun. As we always do on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we like to wrap up with call signs. Now, Peter Stravides, we've been using Tool all day. Tell us about that. How did that come about? Uh, you know none of these are true, Jello, right? <laughs> well, the family version is fine, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> it's a two-part story, but I'll make it really quick. Checked into uh, VFA 11, the Red Rippers. They just turned in their Tomcats for Super Hornets. It's 2008. Walk into the ready room on a Friday. The place is in shambles. 
I picked this up and I still use this to this day, but I checked in with the skipper and he said to me, what talents or skills can you bring to this squadron? Okay, that was like his first question because we, we want to suck everything we can out of a J.O. So I said, well, sir, I'm pretty handy with building stuff and I'm a handy kind of guy. He goes, can you renovate the ready room? I said, sure. So over the weekend, I brought in all my equipment. Monday morning, he walks in. I'm literally laying tile in a kitchen that I'm building in the ready room. <laughs> Temporary call sign, interim call sign tool. Fast forward a year later, we're in Iraq. Lose a refueling probe on a KC-135. Divert into Talil. The probe's hanging off the nose of the jet. They're going to send a rescue debt, blah, 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 blah. I walk over to the fire department. Do you guys have any tools? They hand me a toolbox. I remove the probe from the nose of the jet, call back to the ship and say, I took it off. I'm coming back. Call sign tool. That cemented it for sure. All right. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, Rick Van Dam, we've been calling you Rick all day, but come on. Didn't they have call signs back in F4s? Not so much from the F4. My early days involved with the air races, I picked up the uh, call sign Dutch and it had to do with the uh, Ernest Borgnine character in the Wild Bunch. And all of the uh, young players, since we were in the leadership, just referred to Lee Beal and I from the characters in the Wild Bunch. So I was Dutch from there. Fantastic. Well, you've both been great sports today. I appreciate your time. Tool, we'll start with you. Any uh, closing thoughts you might have? Please come out to the races. You can get a pit pass. Do not be shy. Come to the pits. Remember, it's part air show, part air race. As racers, we want you to come to our pits. If we're standing in front of an airplane in the heat, it's not because we just want to stand in the heat. We're out there to talk to you about our airplanes, to tell you our story, to talk about the things we just talked about. That's why we go there. So please come. Don't be shy. Walk around the airplanes. Ask questions. We'd love to meet you. Awesome. All right, Rick, you can wrap us up if you'd like. One last thing. The jet pits is, uh, like Tool said, they require a uh, pit pass. The jet pits, we're on the east end of the ramp at Reno. We are outside the pit area. So all the families, you get into the jet pits without any additional requirements. So you do not need a pit pass. We will have a uh, cockpit L39 there for all the kids to hop in. So we encourage the families to come up and see us. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both for your time today. All right, big thanks once again to Tool and let's call him now Dutch for taking the time to help us out understanding all things jet class of the Reno Air Races. Thought it was a really great discussion. Now, as mentioned, the Reno Air Races are coming up in September and I will actually plan to be out there on Friday and Saturday, September 16 and 17, 2022. Probably be hanging out in the jet class pits with a FPP polo or t-shirt of some sort. So if you are out there, come find me, say hello. Let's talk about the podcast and the show and the races and everything else. It should be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Otherwise, the one thing I forgot to circle back to at the end there was Tool said he had a service that he provides. And I always ask my guests to pitch whatever it is they're putting out to the world because they took the time to come on the show. So head over to upendreadyflight.com. And you can see the services he offers. And I took a look around and I tell you what, after this discussion, I think we need the fighter pilot podcast jet team. And uh, let's see if we can find a cool aircraft to get out there and start racing. But I don't know. I haven't flown anything tactical in a while. Last time I went up with the red six guys, I got a little air six. So (laughs) I'm probably uh, over the hill, but no, it did sound like a lot of fun. And uh, again, big thanks to those guys. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
All right, we can begin wrapping up this episode then. We want to thank our new Patreon strike lead, Edward Parker. Edward joins about 480 or so other Patreon supporters who help keep the lights on at the show. And in exchange, they get access to it early. They get to ask questions. They get the unedited interviews. They get all kinds of cool perks. So if you've been enjoying this show for a while, maybe it's time to head on over to Patreon and look for the Fighter Pilot Podcast and help us out because we've got some changes coming up. We've been at this. This is our fifth year, and we've got some announcements that are not quite ready for today, but we'll tell you about those as this year wraps up and effective beginning of 2023. I think you're going to see a change to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, hopefully for the better, so don't worry. Now, speaking of changes, our sister show, the F-14 Tomcast, is just about to wrap up. Episode 26 airs on August 30th. And they invited me back because I was there at the beginning to talk about the idea for the show. And then Crunch and Bio ran with it for so long, did a wonderful job, I think. And now I'll be back for episode 26 to help debrief how they did their numbers and their survey results. I think we can skip the disclaimer for this week, but if you enjoyed this topic, racing jets, and you thought it was a little off subject, well, good news. You've got another one just like it coming up in just 10 days when we talk about aerial firefighting. Now, up until now, all of our episodes have been about, frankly, dropping bombs to start fires and kill people, which isn't a nice way to put it, but it's basically true. Well, next week, it's about putting out fires and saving people. So tune in then, and until then, you be well. We'll see you next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.